Well, I'm I'm sure the... uh, Please turn back to page 976 in your Bibles, to Matthew 11, which is where we are in our little series. Amidst all the uh, strife of men and nations, all the gathering complexity of our financial problems, nothing has divided our nation more than whether or not John Sargent should have, should have danced in, uh, and strictly come dancing or having danced should he have left. And if you've never heard of that, bless you, bless you. And it's all the other things. That's what we all get worked up about. God help us. Never mind. We, live in, we are in this congregation, I'm sure, have much higher things to worry about. I do hope you're amongst the people who want to keep Christmas as Christmas and not Winterval that some people want to have in some parts of the world and that you'll mutter under your breath about the fact that our Christmas stamps are pantomime and not the baby Jesus, but that's our world. And I hope you're one of those who will get quite cross inside yourself when you read in the paper that one council doesn't want ever to use the phrase, you can't use the phrase anymore, singing from the same hymn sheet because it upsets the poor atheists. We've got to worry very much. They're very sensitive consciences. I hope we shall stand where we believe. Now, with this congregation... I needn't ask, remind you or ask you the question, when do we celebrate the birthday of Jesus? What an insult to a congregation in Fullwood. You all know that, though in some parts of the world they celebrate it at a different time. If I did ask you the question, when do we celebrate the birthday of John the Baptist, then maybe I might sort you out. Well, the answer is we celebrate John the Baptist's birthday on June the 24th. Well, why does it matter? Because it's a little series, those just here for the first time, we're doing a little series from Matthew 11, and last week we had the question, who is Jesus? This week, who is John the Baptist? And these two overlapped in their ministry. And John the Baptist, we celebrate his birthday on June the 24th. And a Puritan, uh, years ago, centuries ago, had this rather nice thought. It's appropriate we do those birthdays when we do, because we don't know what year day Jesus was born any more than we know what day John the Baptist was was born. But it's appropriate. December 25th, the shortest day has just gone, and we're going into longer days. June the 24th, the longest day has just gone, and we're going down into shorter days. And that's how it should be. John the Baptist would say in John chapter 3, verse 30, about Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. And therefore it's appropriate that when we think about John the Baptist, we actually think about what he had to say about Jesus, because in a sense, that's the most important thing for him and for us. And these children baptised this morning, of course we long for all sorts of things for them, as their family do. But supremely, if we take baptism seriously, that they might come to know and to love Jesus. Now the staggering thing about John the Baptist is that Jesus gave the most remarkable eulogy. Just glance at verse 11 and I would submit to you there has never been a eulogy like it. I tell you the truth. That's the old verily, verily. Amen, amen. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Could you have a eulogy like that? Nobody ever born greater than. I take a number of funerals and uh, it's kind of path pattern nowadays, for better or for worse, have these eulogies. I sometimes wonder whether the deceased person would recognize himself or herself by the kind of things they say about them, but there there you are. But this is a eulogy of eulogy, and it's said by Jesus at a moment of John the Baptist's greatest weakness. You saw it last week at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 3. 
he sent the disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Was John the Baptist wavering? Some would say no and some would say that he was actually trying to get the disciples, his disciples to believe in Jesus and therefore he knew but he wanted the disciples who were wavering because of him. I think probably not. I think John under pressure in prison wondered. He wasn't being rescued. This Messiah didn't seem to be quite the preacher he thought he might have been. He wasn't putting the axe to the root of the trees and perhaps he wondered. And at his greatest weakness, Jesus said that amazing thing about him. Now you see, what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? Oh, he has a lot to say about him, not in this passage, but in, uh, for example, John 1.27, he says about Jesus, I'm not fit to lick his boots. No, it doesn't exactly say that. They use different language. But he said, I'm not fit to unloose the thongs of his sandals. I think that's in modern English. I'm not fit to lick his boots. And the glorious thing about John the Baptist, the greatest born of woman, is that he wasn't fit to lick the boots of Jesus. That's the uniqueness of Christ. And what does John the Baptist say about himself? Well, in John chapter 1, when everybody gathered, remember, he was a great preacher. People flocked to the desert. He was the Billy Graham of his day, and even more so, and they flocked him in the desert to hear him preach. And it was a, a nine-day wonder. And so they sent a deputation from the uh, important people. And asked John the Baptist, tell me, are you the Messiah? To which came the answer, no. John was good at monosyllables. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? Come back again. No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you? I am just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That was his view of himself. Ponder it. Happy the man or the woman of whom Jesus' view of you is bigger than your view of yourself. Ponder that one. Often it's the other way around. We rather higher view of us than Jesus would have. So we come to this extraordinary moment. Now, some of you know, I'm sorry for those who are visitors today, I was vicar here for 29 years, I've been retired 11 years, and every now and again, they very kindly invite me back to preach. And in between whiles, I'm not sort of uh, sitting around doing nothing, I'm travelling up and down the country preaching. And when you're going away preaching, uh, there's always a temptation to hawk around your best sermon when you're wandering around. No, I don't do that, of course, but there's a temptation. But when I come back to full, I have to fit in the series. And... Thank you, Vicar, because this passage includes three of the most difficult verses in the Gospel. And they are difficult but very exciting verses. For example, look at verse 11. That's a distinctive verse, verse about a distinctive ministry. Verse 12 is a disturbing ministry. Verse 19, at the end of it, is a discerning ministry. All difficult verses. Quickie. It's a distinctive ministry because here's Jesus saying about John the Baptist, listen, you are the greatest born of woman, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What on earth does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that John the Baptist didn't belong to the kingdom of heaven. When I get to heaven, I shall see John the Baptist. He'll be there, of course he will. Because he believed in Jesus, he pointed forward to Jesus. But what he never saw Jesus die on the cross. He pointed forward to it, but he died before that moment. He never knew the wonder of Pentecost when the Spirit came down upon ordinary people. He never knew that. So in one sense, although he was a great figure, the greatest born of woman, 
the most ordinary Christian has got something he could never, ever know. These two little girls baptized this morning can know something that John the Baptist couldn't know because he was living before it. So that's what that verse means. And do you realize how it marks the distinctiveness of Jesus? We live in a world of many religions. We respect people's right to tolerate, to to worship in the the way they want. But we as Christians will never for a moment diminish the uniqueness of Christ. There is no other like him. He stands unique, distinctive. Second is a disturbing one. Verse 12 is very difficult. The translation from now, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. It may have two meanings, just putting it briefly. It may mean that it's, you've got to have force to get in. You, you don't become Christians by just sliding in. You've got to make an effort. But it also may mean that a lot of force is used against Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is a violent affair. It began with a man dying on a cross. It began, if you want want to put it that way, with God coming down from heaven. This was all terribly forceful things. And you see, we've rather lost it. One One of the great British heresies is to say, well, of course, religion's my private affair. What I believe about God is between me and my God and nobody else. Well, the Bible doesn't seem to know anything about that kind of Christianity. From the beginning, they wanted to go out and tell it. It was part of becoming a Christian. That's why we call one plus one equals 2,000. If you weren't here on Wednesday, you missed a treat. The church was balloon, festooned with balloons. I've never seen it like that before. But it was a launch of an event which ought to come naturally. That is to spread our faith. You can't hide behind a kind of secret faith. While we are being secret, the world is getting on with its agenda. And thirdly, it was a discerning, verse 19, wisdom is proved right by her actions. You can translate it, wisdom is proved right by her children. And it's all to do with children's games. Our Lord's talked about playing games in the marketplace. Do children still play games in playgrounds or are they so busy with their computer games we don't play games anymore? Hopscotch has died a death, I guess. When I was a boy at grammar school in Blackman in Lancashire, the, the lads at the grammar school, we all, we, we, the only thing we ever played at playtime was football. And we had three teams. You were glad to know in those days there were three breweries in, 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 in Blackburn, Lyon, Twitch and Dutton. And so the teams are all Lyon. I was the captain of the Lions team. Lyon, Twitch and Dutton. These are very important truths. And we played football every day. One played the other, the other played the other. And that's all we ever did. We just played games. Trivial. And now it's Sheffield Wednesday, so there you are. It's all been trivial. But here, the challenge here is, Jesus says, don't play games. Don't play games. You see, people were playing games. Uh, some wanted to play games at wedding games, playing at weddings. But John the Baptist didn't fit with weddings. He was gloomy. Talked about judgment. Didn't fit. And Jesus didn't play, fit with the funeral games. They wanted to play funerals. But he was so cheerful. And he, he mixed with the outcasts. He went with publicans and sinners. And you see, what Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, look, You're never satisfied. You actually aren't being serious. You're just playing games. 
Can I say to you, whatever else you do about the Christian faith, please don't play games with it. The man who died on a cross is worth more than that. A man who came down from heaven's glory to be a baby and to be born into insignificance is worth more than that. You either take him seriously or leave him away. Don't play games. That's what this passage is all about. And so John the Baptist stands athwart history. He was the last of the prophets. He was the first of the new line. That's my rest of my talk. Be assured, I shan't go on forever preaching because I've got to sing in the choir this afternoon. I'm, I've reached the new status. I'm joining the, the, the carol choir. So in order to get, get lunch and get back for the carol, you're quite safe. I shall finish in due course. <laughs> he was the last of his line and he was the first of his line. He was the last of his line as the last of the prophets. That's what Jesus said. He was a prophet, verse 9. He was more than a prophet. He was the messenger we read about in Malachi chapter 3. The one who would come before to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. And he was the, uh, the last of his line in sacrifice and in service. What did Jesus mean when he said about him in verse 7? What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed? Swayed by the wind? What is a reed swayed by the wind? Well, it might mean an ordinary thing. If you were walking in the desert, there were thousands of reeds being swayed by the wind. You didn't bother. Rather like in the Old Testament, Moses and the burning bush. Plenty of bushes that burned, but only one spoke from God. Uh, but I think it also means he was not ordinary. Christians should never be ordinary. We've got something extraordinary to offer. Because we have an extraordinary saviour who can save in extraordinary ways. But the reed swayed by the wind is much more what John the Baptist was not. He was not a man who bowed to every new opinion. Who said what everybody else wanted him to say. For the Old Testament prophets were like that, if you read them. There was Jeremiah who got put in prison because he dared to speak against what the king was doing. Tradition says that Isaiah, because he was faith, was sawn in two. And prophets had a rough time because they dared not to be swayed. Now, why does Jesus say he was like Elijah, verse 14? Not just because he dressed like him, not just because he was in the desert like him, but he dared to preach like him. I wonder if you remember, some of you do the story. Elijah dared to preach in the days of a king called Ahab who was a weak king and an evil king, and he encouraged the worship of false gods. He married Jezebel, who led him into all sorts of evil ways, and eventually Ahab and Elijah meet, 1 Kings 18. At last the two meet. And what does uh, the king say to Elijah, 1 Kings 18, 16? Are you the troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, no, I'm not the troubler of Israel. It's you who trouble Israel. It's you who worship the false gods. I am speaking out against what you do because I stand for the true God. Let me tell you a story. One of the jobs I do now, being somewhat older, is that I get younger clergy who come to me with their problems and their joys. And as I travel the country, I meet them. One young curate came to me, not been ordained very long, and when it was his ordination vows, there were six of them who were ordained in his diocese. He was the only one of the six who took seriously what he was being promising. 
uh, the vows we were making. The others admitted they had their fingers crossed when they promised allegiance to the 39 articles of religion, which every clergyman is supposed to believe. Only he, out of the six, openly believed it. A few months later, he was in trouble. The bishop called him to him and said, look, you're causing trouble. Why was he causing trouble? They were having debates about uh, homosexual practice and he was standing for what the Bible teaches clearly. But because he was standing alone on this and the other five uh, were quite happy to compromise, he was the one who was causing the trouble. He was on the carpet for being a troubler. He was the one who was daring to stir things up. And he was standing simply for the truth of Scripture and the truth of the Church of England. And when John the Baptist preached, Jesus said, Is there a man who would change his views in order to fit in with the feeling of our day? No. Recently in General Synod, there was a, a decision made. The issue is unimportant at the moment. But when the decision was made, one man said, this was the comment, Oh, at last we're catching up with culture. Is that what the church is meant to do? Isn't the church meant to stand firm on the truth of God and very often means counterculture? Do we go on bowing to every wind? John the Baptist, commended by Jesus, has been the greatest born of woman in his sacrifice, was not willing to shift. Sometime, if you remember, when you get home, you read in Luke chapter 3 how the message first came to John the Baptist. It gives a list of all the kings of the day it gives a list of all the priests of the day. And then it says, the word of God came to John in the desert. Not to the kings, not to the priests, but to this lonely, faithful man in the desert. Thank God for John the Baptist. He was willing to sacrifice. But not only in sacrifice, but in service. He was the last of the prophets, and the prophets were those who pointed forward, who foretold the word of God, who foretold what God would do. And John the Baptist had the unique privilege of pointing to Jesus. You'll notice in verse 16, it talks about this generation. The one was uniquely there, was able to hear the Jesus himself speak, and yet that generation eventually would crucify Jesus. But John the Baptist's job was always to point to Jesus, to call people to repent of sins and to turn to Christ. He was the most faithful of pastors because he dared to speak the truth. I've often wondered, I, I, again, I get linked in with churches who are looking for vicars and so on, looking for a new vicar and they ask advice. I wonder how many churches would dare to invite John the Baptist to be their vicar. Can you imagine he'd be a popular choice? I think, in fact, most would say, well, he's a bit too strong, isn't he? The last of his line, in sacrifice, in service. But he was also the first of his line. Because he stands at that moment that you and I can enter into. Yes, uh, he couldn't know the fullness of the gospel because he was not there when Jesus died. and He wasn't there at Pentecost. But he anticipated it. And two things should be true of us as we follow John the Baptist, the first of his line. The first is, listen to him. And the second is, live like him. Listen to him. Why was John the Baptist so revolutionary? 
he was so revolutionary because he dared to say to the people of Israel who thought themselves the people of God, you must repent of your sins and you must be baptized. Now, we're at the service of baptism this morning. We had another one at 9.15. We've seen three children baptized today. The mark of God's cleansing. And uh, it speaks of what Christ has done on the cross. It points towards it. But a Jewish person never got baptized because they believed they were already clean. If you were a proselyte, a Gentile, then you got baptized before you were circumcised. But not a Jew, because you were already clean. That was their thought. But this man dared to say, you need to repent. You need to baptize. And Luke chapter 7 says about the Pharisees, they missed out God's purpose because they refused to be baptized by John. And I believe, and I said this at 9.15 to the congregation, I believe there are many of us who need to start this way. We've never really repented. We've never really, we may have gone through the outward marks of baptism of children, many of us, but we've never really come to that place of being cleansed ourselves. And I dare to say it as one who's vicar here, it's easy to stand, to sit on the outskirts of a church like Fullwood. There are other people who make response and we almost benefit from what they have done. The challenge to all of us is, Repent and accept his cleansing. And it, you, when you read John the Baptist in, 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 John chapter, in Luke chapter 3, he, he goes on telling people how they should repent. Show it in the way you live. Do you know what repentance is? Repentance is the old-fashioned military term, halt, right about, turn. I was never in the army. I'd have met a very poor soldier, but I do know what to do. Halt, right about, turn. Repentance is stopping the way we're going and turning. Listen to him. And he points to Jesus as a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I trust you believe in him. And I trust today, if you don't, you're not sure, that you'll take, take him seriously. Don't play games like Jesus complained. But then secondly and finally, live like him. No, I don't mean go out into the desert and go with locusts and wild honey. But I do mean live like him in two or three ways. One, don't be a reed shaken with the wind. If you weren't here on Wednesday night when we were challenged about this new outreach venture, we were reminded that it will always be true if I dare to try to speak about my faith in Jesus, I may, just may, lose friends. I used often to take missions in parishes and I would always talk to the parochial church council beforehand and say, look, when it comes to the pinch, you're going to take a risk. You may invite some friend to come and hear the message in your home and they will be upset, they'll be offended and you'll lose them. You'll make many more friends and pray God some will come to faith. But you run the risk because you were going to put Jesus first. And because you believe that a real friend needs Jesus, you will take some risk sensitively, wisely, courageously. Are you ready for that risk? Don't be like the reed, shaken by the wind. And what was the other thing that he said about John the Baptist in verse 8? A man dressed in fine clothes. Oh, no, no, if you want uh, to be that kind of person, you don't live like John the Baptist. And sadly, there have been down the centuries many people who in, with their religion have been so keen to cozy up to the people in authority that they become like them. 
Paul talks in one of his letters about those who accumulate themselves teachers to suit what their itching ears want to hear. Oh, it's lovely to have somebody who will tell you exactly what you want to hear. And uh, Paul says, please don't be like that. John the Baptist wasn't like that. And if we live like him, we'll not be a reed shaken by the wind. We'll not be like people who bother too much about how we get on in the world. I believe under God that this time we're going through, painful though it may be for people, and we must look out for those in need, could be the time when people begin to ask the real questions. What is a true security? What do I care most about? Where is my real hope? If I always want to be like those who get on well in society, then I'll never follow Jesus. But am I prepared to be like him? Dare I say, and I say this very cautiously, dare we want to end like John the Baptist? Do you know how John the Baptist ended? He was executed in prison. His head was chopped off. Do you remember the story? It is, I think, one of the most chilling stories in the Bible. And it's actually more relevant than you think it is. Let me just tell it you and then we'll finish. John was in prison. Why was he in prison? Because he dared to tell Herod about his sexual immorality. Only the other day somebody came to me and said, Oh, clergy, you're always going on about sex. Aren't there other things more important to talk about? Well, oddly enough, in the Bible, constantly, because the Bible takes life seriously, knows the greatest power for ill and good in our world, often dwells on sex. That's why John the Baptist was there. He told Herod the way he was behaving was wrong, it was against God's law, and he was shoved into prison. Then came the moment when they had their great moment of dancing, not strictly come dancing, anything but uh, the, his stepdaughter danced a voluptuous dance. And Herod got so excited, he made this extraordinary statement. You may have whatever you like to the half of my kingdom. That was so wonderful. And she went to her mother. What shall I ask? The head of John the Baptist who dared to speak out against me. And Herod, in order not to lose face in front of this semi-inebriated lot, killed the preacher. Why, oh, come on. Would that ever happen? There are so many people who care more about what other people think and will go to all sorts of extents not to lose face. And I simply want to say to you, I hope you decide where you stand. He ended like that, did John. He was true and he finished that way. In a minute, we're going to sing a hymn a hymn that I've chosen because the preacher's allowed to choose the last hymn. We've had two lovely hymns by Stuart Town and the great writer of today. We're going to sing a hymn by Charles Wesley. Just pick it up. Pick up your, hip, your sheet and let me just dwell on it for a minute and then we'll sing it. Why have I chosen this? Well, partly because it's a lovely hymn. It's a hymn I've often sung in my time, O Thou Who Camest From Above. Just look at the last verse. Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat till death 
thy endless mercy seal and make the sacrifice complete. Before I came to church for the 4 915 service this morning, wondering what the weather was like outside, I, I had a little time of prayer. And amongst my times of prayer, uh, as I always, I have a little sheet where I pray for the people who are being persecuted for their faith. And as we meet in comfort here, I was praying for some people who've just been shipped off to prison and to death because they refused to deny Jesus. Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Turkey, North Korea, you name it, Pakistan. It's happening. I simply want you and me to be at least fit to lick their boots. And when I sang hymns about death when I was a young clergyman, that was a long time off, it seemed. I'm a lot nearer now, but I still want to make that my prayer. God, give me grace to live like John the Baptist, to listen to the message he said, to point to Jesus, and to live for him, whatever it costs, and forget the applause of the world that counts for nothing when the chips are down. Before we sing, let me pray.